right. Welcome to the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. I am your host, Debbie Maisner. I am a registered nurse, health coach, and alcohol-free badass. And today I have Shelby John on the show. She is a clinical social worker. She is the host of Confident Sober Women podcast, and she also has her own business helping women in sobriety. So welcome, Shelby. I hope I did your intro all right. Oh, that's perfect. You did, you did it great. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more, though, about, about who you are and what you do. Sure. So uh, my name is Shelby John. I am a woman in long-term recovery. My sobriety date is July 1st, 2002. Um, I'm also a licensed mental health professional. I'm a social worker, and I have a private practice in the state of Maryland where I serve clients to help them heal their trauma using EMDR therapy. So I have the pleasure and honor of working with mostly women, and I would say, in healing their trauma through therapy and also working with individuals from all over the world in coaching. So I created a coaching practice as an extension of what I do in my mental health practice so that I could reach more people because most people know, or if they don't, as mental health professionals, we can't practice across state lines. So coaching is not the same thing as therapy. We know this, but it is obviously very closely related and linked. I can't do everything that I do in my private practice in coaching, but I can cross state lines and international lines. So I wanted to be able to serve more women in sobriety specifically and help them to understand that they can build confidence and emotional sobriety in a way that's very natural and mostly using things they already have within themselves. They just need somebody to kind of draw them out and help them to be guided along the road. Um, so that's what I do professionally. I'm, I have three children. They're all teenagers right now. So don't be jealous. I'm married and the same man that I started dating when I was 16 and he lived with me through my addiction and recovery. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm not jealous of your teenagers. I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. Ah, man. We should do a show on that. <laughs> yeah, I could talk a lot about it. I actually just got off the phone with a, a co-worker of mine who is dealing with a stepdaughter who's 14 and really struggling. And I, I, I started the conversation off saying, I'm not really sure I'm the best person for you to talk to because I don't know how much positivity I'll be able to bring to your situation, but I'll give it my best. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for summarizing what you do and the role of, I actually think a lot of people don't realize that you can be a a clinical, like, uh, therapist, but you are really restricted by where you can legally practice. And so I think that's really helpful to hear. And coaching allows you to reach and help other people and use your knowledge and expertise. Uh, to help people, um, especially women and sobriety. Well, what, what was so good? So good. Okay. What was your experience with drinking and addiction? So, um, just to give you a general view, I guess, to keep it a, a timely manner. I grew up in a regular 
working family. Uh, was the one I, I my mom was divorced when I was young, and then was remarried to a man that raised us. So, as, except for the fact that there was that divorce and abandonment, which did leave a trauma stain on my brain, and is the catalyst, I believe, for a lot of dysfunction for myself personally. I was raised in a family that was very loving, very. Um, pretty functional. There was a lot of drinking, a lot of heavy drinking, but not, I wouldn't say it was alcoholic. It was just partying, um, you know, good time party Charlie kind of stuff. Uh, we went to private schools. We went to summer camp. My parents built a nice home and a community nearby. They, we had a pool, we had friends. I mean, it was a very, rather nice upbringing, but for me growing up, I just always felt a little bit different. Um, and I remember hearing that, when I got to the 12 step rooms and got sober, I felt like I just didn't fit in. I never really had language for that when I was younger and especially in active addiction. And I always felt like I was living in what I kind of call this constant chaos. When I look back now, I know that that was probably anxiety. It's just that nobody really called it that back then. We didn't really know. And so I felt a little bit different than my fellows, I guess I'll say. And I always had this sense that I wasn't really enough. You know, I wasn't pretty enough, thin enough, smart enough. I didn't really feel like I fit in with my peers. And so there was this just generalized chaos going on. I was a little bit of a late bloomer. My, I was the oldest child and my parents were pretty strict. They had rules and my mom, you know, called our all the parents of people when we went to parties and events and things. And so I was a little bit afraid to like drink or use anything a lot in high school because my parents were kind of, uh, you know, strict with us. So I would say I was a later bloomer in my senior year of high school. I started to experiment with drinking a little bit, um, but it was always fairly abnormal and it would be like a lot kind of binge drinking, I guess. And, and like, and I would experience blackouts and kind of right off the bat. Right. So there was no easing into it. And then I went away to college to North Carolina state and I was by myself. I didn't know anybody there. I was six hours from home and I really kind of just found drinking to be the relief that I was looking for. Right. Of course I didn't know that at the time, but I just, used alcohol to be a better self, right? To fit in, to, to be happy, to feel like I was enjoying my time with my friends and, and my peers and to just get through life. I, I developed a little bit of a depression during that time too. I had my first suicide attempt when I was a freshman in college. Um, Actually, I think I was a sophomore in college and nobody really even knew. I didn't tell anybody and it was just very private. And I was like, oh, gosh, here I am again, kind of screwing up. I couldn't even get this right. Right. So I went to counseling for the first time, I think, or at least since I was a little kid. When I was in college, I used the counseling center and tried to get some help. But you know, therapy only works when you tell your therapist the truth. So for me, I wasn't honest about my drinking. I wasn't going to share, you know, exactly what was going on with me. I was very guarded. And so it probably worked a little bit, but I didn't really get a lot of healing. And so then I transferred schools and for my junior and senior year to be closer to my uh, now husband who was in a different school. And all of that continued, but it got even worse, you know, because I had this sort of perfectionistic nature as well, which we know is a little bit of um, 
has a huge link to addiction and also shame and um, some other kind of trauma responses. So I was, I had problems with food and a lot of restriction in that area. I decided that it was time for me to get straight A's. Um, so I wasn't sleeping much. I never ate very much. I was drinking a lot, trying to get straight A's, trying to maintain this relationship. Uh, and it just was really dysfunctional. I was a really um, sad, scared little girl for a long time. And that really continued on into my young adulthood. I had a job. Fast forward a little, I got a job at um, social services and I was working in the foster care division. And there was there was a lot of functionality to my life. You know, we owned a home. We had two cars. I went to work every day. But there was a lot of dysfunction in my thinking. My negative thinking patterns were alive and well. And what basically drew my my life forward. It was always negative. I was always putting myself down. I didn't have any confidence or self-esteem. I couldn't recognize anything positive that I ever did. I couldn't accept a compliment. Um, and even though I went back to school to get my master's degree in social work and then I was, that was at the end of my drinking. So things were very dysfunctional. I don't know how I did that. I, I was in school for three years. The last year of that program, I graduated in May of 2002. I got sober in 2002 in July. So if it kind of gives you an idea about where I was, it was, it was not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, that's kind of how it went. Um, I didn't get sober by choice. You know, I had a very, devastating legal situation come up for me that affected my professional life. It was incredibly embarrassing. It was um, slightly high profile in my, in my world anyway, and could have been very much career ending. And that was the end of my drinking. So that situation happened. You know, I was now faced with quite a bit of consequences to deal with that, you know, was costly financially as well as emotionally. And at that point, my family decided that it was time for me to go to rehab. And I think because I was so afraid of everything that was going on, even though I did not think I knew I was crazy. I knew that all the time. I was nuts. Um, I didn't think alcohol had anything to do with that. And so I could justify, in fact, when I was arrested in that, for that situation, I was in a police interrogation and um, I had the wonderful pleasure of watching that interrogation tape in a lawyer's office in DC a couple months after that for 45 minutes where I basically tried to explain to the police officers how I wasn't drunk. And I know I'm not drunk because I know how much I need to drink in order to be drunk. And there was no way I could have been drunk during that incident. And that went on for literally 45 minutes. (laughs) So, um, that was a very pivotal moment for me in my sobriety. I was probably two or three months sober when I saw that. And it really helped me to see myself in living color in moving picture, honestly, justifying and um, straight up lying, right. About, about my alcohol use, but I didn't think I was lying. Yeah. I thought that was, that was really my reality. And so um, I went to rehab. It was the best thing for me because I needed to be removed from my environment. I know lots of people get um, sober in a lot of different kinds of ways. I'm a huge proponent of finding the way that works for you. Um, I went inpatient because that's what my family decided was going to be the most beneficial for me. I did not go there willingly. I thought they were going to come and get me out of there. 
I sat for two weeks. I never even unpacked my bag. I assumed somebody was going to come and get me. Nobody came. Uh, I turned 27 in that rehab. And after that point, I did have my first spiritual awakening sitting outside on this beautiful lawn looking overlooking the Susquehanna River. And I cried out to whatever I could at that time. I guess it was my God or higher power to really surrender for the first time. And, and I say in the best way possible because, you know, we get better with things. We are more honest with time. And so for me, I gave the best that I could at that time. And um, I had some relief. You know, I was able to listen. I was able to learn and absorb the content that was being given to us about the disease of addiction. I was able to start to focus on healing. We had a little bit of a family program. So I was able to participate in that. And then when I got home, I went to AA because almost 20 years ago, that's really all we had. You know, it was 12-step meetings or kind of like, or I guess white knuckling it. There wasn't a lot of other options. We didn't have Facebook groups. We didn't have Quitlet. There wasn't smart recovery. And so I didn't have, in my view, any other choice. And for me, 12-step really worked for me. I mean, it helped me build a fellowship. I got a lot of love and support there. And I was told there by my first sponsor that this is not the only way to get sober. It's just the way we know. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful for that because I know that a lot of women, at least that I encounter, probably you too, really struggle with 12-step programs. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Um, It's just what worked for me. So that's what happened uh, in the beginning, and kind of the rest is a lot of history. Well, yeah, what a powerful story, and what a powerful gift, I want to say, that was for you to view that video of yourself. Mm. It just reminds me, like, yeah, go ahead. It was really sad and, and scary. Yeah. And even at, you know, I don't know if you can remember, I barely remember now, I think what it felt like to be two or three months sober, but I was not well, you know, Mm -hmm. I was, I was still a very scared little girl inside. I had a lot of room to, to be growing and, and changing, but I remember being just sickened by that. Like, who is that person? You know, what are you doing? You don't even know, like I never even explained the situation or talked about the incident I was being accused of. It was all about the drinking. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that and congratulations on 20 years of sobriety. That is fantastic. Oh, thanks. Well, let's get in. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I was on Shelby's show, which I will link to in the show notes. So we talk a little bit more about early sobriety and and just kind of different ways of treatment. And uh, we talk a little bit more about AA and, and what some people find helpful and, and why some people don't. But like Shelby said, like there's so many different ways uh, to get sober, basically, um, and do what works best for you. So I just want to segue then into the first years of sobriety, since you kind of deal more with long-term sobriety. What what would you say are unique challenges in those first few years of sobriety? I think the unique challenges of the first few years are just the 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 newness of of everything, right? So you're no longer able to use the product 
drugs, alcohol, food, sex, whatever you're using to relieve yourself of feelings, right? You're no longer able to escape from your life using substances. And so you're, you're left with yourself. You know, like I remember when I was in rehab and that's still early, but in even beyond that, this carried on, like I was still a nut, you know, I was working hard on things, but I was, I was really, um, didn't really like myself. I didn't know how to be kind to myself at all. And so I would run and exercise obsessively. I would go out and have these incredible expectations for myself to perform at a certain level. And the entire time I would be using the most horrific self-talk that on myself that was just horrible. And, and I think back on those times sometimes now, and I'm actually grateful that I remember that because I can see the progress, right? And what happens if you stay sober and you do the work. But I can remember just going for these jobs in my neighborhood and being like, you're so lazy. You can't even run this fast. And like, you're too fat. You shouldn't even be a runner. You're too fat. I mean, just, just horrible things. And um, I, I mean, a lot of that changes pretty quickly if you dig in, but you got to commit and, and commitment I'm going to go on a limb and say, speaking of generalization is tough for people like us, you know, like, I don't think, uh, I mean, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, you know, we are undisciplined. Now I thought I was the most disciplined person in the world because I could do a lot of things physically with my body. I could restrict my food. I could show up at work every day, but really what it means is, is we're not disciplined to do the things that we need to do to be well, and so that's the kind of stuff that I think needs to be learned in the first few years of sobriety. And for a first few months or sometimes longer, I have a client right now who's about to celebrate a year. And so I'm kind of watching this happen. And she's she's kind of on the pink cloud. You know, we use that term for the time period where you're feeling really great and like everything is awesome. And, oh, my gosh, your marriage is starting to get better and your kids are talking to you and you're feeling healthy. And I, I hate to be the burst of that. Like, I don't want to be the person that comes along and is like Debbie Downer. <laughs> but the realistic part of it is, is that at some point for all of us, even in the very best of circumstances, life gets really hard. You know, whether it's a loss or just feelings or you're, somebody disappoints you or you don't get something you want. I mean, we're going to have opportunities to experience a lot of pain and hurt and um that's not that fun and so that pink cloud part of this does sort of fade particularly after year one and you start to get into the real stuff of what it means to live as a human being in this world well you know, like what it means to have internal peace and serenity, despite the stuff that's going on around you. And I think that's the biggest challenge, because for most of us, we've never had that. We've never had that. And that's why we used things to help us to get that, right? Because we didn't have internal peace and serenity, no matter what, no matter how many hot baths we took or spa days or whatever, it just wasn't there. And so, I think finding ways to heal your past trauma, to deeply understand why you got set on that path of addiction and 
for most of us, the research does say that it comes from trauma and also chemical makeup and genetics, but a lot of it is from trauma. And trauma is relative, right? I need to point that out, that like we don't all have big capital T traumas in our life. We have micro traumas all the time, right? Sometimes just turning the news on can be traumatic. Sometimes some word that your dad said to you can be traumatic, you know, a divorce, um, anything, sometimes things that feel like, well, everybody goes through that. Lots of parents are divorced and that's true, but it's relative to each person. So just like my three kids are being raised by a family that we think we're parenting them pretty similarly. They're all experiencing that very differently. And so my words to one of my kids might sound extremely critical or, or hurtful Words to another one. They're like, whatever, like I'm going to do what I want. You know, it doesn't pay him any mind. I hope that's making sense. Yeah. So how, what are like some tangible tips you can give like you, you talked a lot about negative thinking let's just start there <laughs> um so are... negative thinking yeah. is a huge problem i think for most of us that's what i hear the most from women that's mm-hmm. that's an accessible dysfunction that i think feels like generally socially acceptable to talk about like most of the women that i run into in my facebook group or anywhere in my life talk about the fact that they struggle with their own negative thinking patterns and um it's so important that I made it like probably it's like the number one module of my, of my transformation program. Right. Because it is so, it's that important. So one of the things that I always recommend is to take time to really understand what your negative thoughts are. So that's like the first step in it. And by the way, there's a awesome five day negative thinking challenge in my Facebook group for free that goes over everything I'm going to talk about right now. So if you want to go in there, it's called confidence over women Facebook group. It's in the guide section. It's accessible and free to everybody. You can just jump in there anytime. So the first step of that really is to begin to notice what your negative thinking patterns are. So what are they? So for example, it might be, I'm not good enough, or I always mess things up, or I'm a failure, or whatever else they are for you. We all have multiple different ones. And the next part is to really start to begin to take an inventory of when those negative thoughts show up in your life. So when do they, when do you experience those? Is it like after you have an interaction with your spouse that's negative? Is it when your boss calls you to his office and you're on the way down the hallway and you're going through everything in your mind and starting to think about, um, all the mistakes you've made. Is it, um, when you didn't achieve something that you said you wanted to do is it when you get in a car accident, one of those things showing up, right. And begin to notice that. And I always encourage people to write this stuff down, helps us to track. So when is it happening? And then, and then when it happens, what is your response to that or your reaction? What what happens to you, right? Do you begin to get into like an anxiety swirl? Do those thoughts just snowball and begin to keep building and building until you almost get into a panic? Do you have a physical response to those thoughts? Do you feel are your chest tightening? Is your, are your hands sweaty? Do you feel like you need to run, like you need to fight or flight? Um, The second part of that, so once you really understand a lot of that is the second part is to begin to, um, I'm sorry, I just lost my, (laughs) you're going to edit this, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
So you I'm sorry, were, I just lost my train. Yeah, you're talking so, about like you first you need to become aware of it and then um really examine it, write things down and then go on. Yeah, and then you need to be able to identify where you can feel it in your body and I think that's very important because our bodies hold trauma and experiences differently than our brains do. So once you have that information, then you have something to work with. So then you can begin to start shifting those uh, negative thoughts and beliefs into something that's a little bit more positive, kind of inserting the spoke in the wheel, if you will, and begin to change things. So that means basically when the thought comes, the incident happens, the thought happens, as soon as that thought happens and you're inserting something into that um, pattern immediately. So something that I teach is the stop sign technique. So visualizing a stop sign, you can even print out a stop sign or put red dots around places in your house to kind of imagine this flashing stop sign in your mind that says like, stop it, stop that thinking right now. It's because you want to interrupt the pattern. And once you've interrupted the pattern, it gives you this chance to take a breath and to think, okay, what is going on with me right now? What just happened? What about this situation is really bothering me? So you can begin to kind of uncover some of the underlying stuff like, well, I'm afraid that I might get fired or I'm afraid that if I share these feelings with my husband, he will leave me or I am afraid or I'm, I'm worried that I won't be able to achieve the goal that I've set out to for, for so many years. So if we interrupt the pattern, it gives you a chance to breathe, check in with yourself, asking yourself, what is going on with my, with me right now? Why, why am I afraid? And, um, then you can gently begin to shift your mind into a much more positive statement about yourself. Now, I don't mean a glaring, huge thing like, I'm the best person in the whole world or, you know, I'm the greatest mom ever. I just mean a gentle shift. So beginning to shift those patterns into something that's a lot more uh, functional and positive. So something like, even though I made this mistake I did a lot of things really well today. Mm -hmm. Or even though I have these feelings of anxiety, I know how to take care of myself. Or I can do hard things. Or I'm wonderfully and fearfully made. And there's a million different kinds of these statements that we can use. Some people call them affirmations. You don't have to use that term if you don't want to. I recommend that you do spend a little bit of time thinking about them, though, and then writing those down so that when you're in the midst of that situation, you can have them accessible to you, like maybe in the notes section of your phone or somewhere so that you can pull them up right away. Because a lot of times if you're in the middle of like, uh, a situation you're not going to be able to think of them on your own but we want there to be a gentle shift away from that negative thought into something that's much more positive is this making sense yeah that's great that's so helpful I love how you walked us through that um so it makes me think of of what you talk about a lot is emotional sobriety can you define that for us what that means so emotional sobriety means being able to feel that peace and serenity on the inside, which means truly having joy 
despite what's going on around you and being able to regulate the emotional experiences that you have in your life pretty much all the time. Right. So we, so we get flooded with information we get flooded with life and experiences and all this stuff kind of comes in and we have chemical reactions in our brain to this, right? Our brains produce cortisol and adrenaline and other chemicals that are related to our emotional experiences. So we're actually having an emotional response, a physical reaction to the emotions that we're experiencing, which is similar almost to being drunk. That makes sense, right? So we're kind of being, we're kind of drunk on emotions. So what we're looking to do and, and working through a lot of this trauma and um, negative thinking patterns and just healing that is to, is to change those responses to your emotions, right? So to begin to recognize them, give them names, understand them. A lot of this looks like reparenting yourself, like rewriting your story and taking care of that inner child so that you can not be so reactive and looking for an escape and be able to feel content and relatively happy in your life on a daily basis as a sober woman. That's great. And and you had talked about shame a lot and how to overcome it. What What would you recommend for overcoming shame, which is such a common emotion and, and feeling, especially around drinking and recovery? Yeah, I agree. Shame is is tough, and it's actually something I've spent a ton of time on. This month in my group, we're focused on shame because it's something that comes up so often, and um, it can be it can be a lasting experience. It's something that we all have, right? Not just sober people. Everybody experiences shame and we just have it at different levels. Whether you came from a a relatively healthy family, there still will be shame patterns. Or if you came from extreme dysfunction and trauma, then you're definitely going to have a lot of work to do around shame. But despite being sober for a while, it doesn't mean that it just goes away. Right. So we want to make sure that, um, it doesn't become problematic in your relationships and you're able to, you're able to think of yourself in a way that's very positive and you can begin to trust yourself and love yourself. So there's a lot of ways that people can experience shame that might not be something you would think of. So things like feeling unappreciated, you know, feeling like you're not valued Um, procrastination is another big one. Um, trying to avoid things, right? There's a lot of, um, problematic kind of behaviors that show up being a perfectionist, you know, losing your identity. These are things that kind of really show that you're experiencing shame. And when we don't address them, then it can look a lot like lashing out or attacking people like, you know, if you're having an interaction and you begin to feel like you're not being appreciated, you might attack somebody or start to get into a lot of defensive behaviors. And um, this is obviously not great for relationships, right? Or maybe you have struggles over apologizing. 
you know, so you become emotionally avoidant. They're all areas that are really important in our professional and personal lives. So it's an important topic. If you want to dive into it again, I did a bunch of uh, work in my group and I will continue to for the rest of the month. But there's a couple of things that I talked about last week in a video about healing shame. And I can just share a couple of them if you want. Yeah, and that'd be great. One of them is the, um, is acceptance. And acceptance is tricky because a lot of times I believe people start to feel like when we say the word acceptance, it means that you're saying that the situation didn't bother you or that it didn't make you sad or hurt you or that it was okay. And that's, it's not the same thing. So really what acceptance is, it's not, it's not just like a casual statement, like, Oh, I guess I have to accept it or an excuse to give up, but it's actually a call to intense action to deal with the problem. Right. So if you realize, so for example, all of the people listening mostly have an addiction of some type. So at some point you realized or you were told that you had an addiction, right? So you accepted that reality that you have a substance abuse problem. You began to accept that. And so then in that acceptance, you determined a course of action and then you dove into it, right? So maybe it was 12 step, maybe it was, re maybe it was rehab therapy or coaching. And in that action is the action is really, the part of acceptance that I think people don't make the connection with. So we're accepting the problem. Yeah. I have a, an alcohol problem. And because of that acceptance, I'm going to jump into action. So again, it doesn't mean that the situation was okay or you weren't hurt by it. It's simply just acknowledging the truth and taking action towards solutions. So another area where I was talking about healing the shame is asking yourself that question, what are you afraid of? It's really one of my favorite questions um, because I think we can get a lot of information when we do that. We can ask ourselves that anytime we have any kind of discomfort coming up. So for example, I have been extremely emotional this week just because my oldest daughter is getting ready to go to college in five months, she leaves. My second one is a junior. She's looking at colleges, so she's going to be leaving right behind her. And my youngest one is starting high school. So there's a lot of transitions happening. They're exciting and good, but they're also scary for me for a variety of reasons, right? So I've been feeling a lot of emotion and disturbance um, that looks like, you know, weepiness and just fe I'm having a fear response. Mm -hmm. So I had to ask myself that question. What am I afraid of? And really dig in. Well, I'm afraid that um, when she goes away, she's never going to come home to visit us or she won't call me, you know, or she'll forget about us. Or I'm afraid that something bad will happen to her, you know, that she'll make a bad choice and that she'll get in trouble or hurt, you know. Um, and I'm afraid that I will be able to handle that if that happens. And, and then I can drill down on that. And if you keep unpeeling the layers of it, well, what happens if that happens? Well, then... I won't be able to show up for her in a way that's going to be helpful. And what happens if that happens? Well, then I'm not a good mom. So then we can get to those core issues. We keep asking the question, keep asking and drilling down. We get to the core issues of where the root of the problem is. And then that's what you have. That core element of the shame is what you have to work with. Right? So maybe you're afraid of being seen for who you are, you know, but at the same time, you're also afraid of being alone. 
So there's a lot of value in asking yourself these questions. You know, what if I don't go to this event where my friends are asking me to go to? I'll just stay home because I don't want to show up because I'm afraid if I show up, people will see me and they won't like me or I'll be rejected. Okay. But then what happens if you're rejected? Well, then I'll be embarrassed. And what happens if I'm embarrassed? Well, then I won't know how to deal with it and I'm going to want to numb out. Is this making sense? Yeah, it's so good. Keep going. Okay. Okay. Um, so that that question, what am I afraid of, I think is very, very valuable for us to be asking anytime we feel any kind of emotional disturbance, really. And as you go through the process, you'll start to get to know your own fear a little bit more. And often, the more sober we get, this is my experience, the, lo- the longer we stay sober and the more work we do on ourselves. Look, I've been sober for kind of a, a hot minute, right? And I'm still doing this, right? I'm still doing this literally this week on my own fear. So it becomes much more subtle, it becomes subtle and kind of unique, you know? It's not usually these big alarming things like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of snakes or I'm afraid of, you know, getting cancer or I'm afraid of tornadoes. You know, they're usually either afraid of not getting something we want or losing something we already have. So we really want to, yeah. And just lastly, another one that I talked about was showing yourself compassion, you know, Um, really learning how to let yourself off the hook for the bad things that have happened to you in the either far or recent past. And this really means forgiveness. It means forgiving yourself for your choices. And forgiveness is a process that looks a lot like acceptance. And it also incorporates a little bit of a spiritual component. And spirituality is not the same thing as religion. But it allows us to go through the process by also connecting with something outside of ourselves, the universe, spirit, call it what you want, and really get into the letting go process. And when we show ourselves that kind of compassion, you heal the pain that caused the hurts that you lived through, right? You start to build that self-love and empathy that I've already talked about. That's so, I think, complex for us to get to and takes a really long time. I mean, self-love is a, is a buzz term and it feels good. And a lot of times we might be able to say like, oh, I love myself. I know for me, it took a very long time. It took a lot of work to be able to trust myself and to be able to show myself this love. But those baby steps, those tiny micro changes where I was able to show myself compassion, for example, like I in my family, um, I call myself the mistake maker, right? I'm the girl that crashes my car. You know, I'm the girl that forgets stuff. I'm the girl that said I would do such and such and then I just didn't do it. I forgot, you know. So I always, I get the speeding tickets, you know, or whatever. I'm just that girl. So what I learned to do was to say things to myself, like I already mentioned, like, yeah, I could spend my whole day focused on the fact that I forgot to pack your lunch and it's really important for you to have a lunch and I forgot. Or I could say, you know what? You forgot to make the lunch. You did. You did that. And that sucks. That was really, you know, a bad choice. But you did a hundred things really well today. And I can choose to make myself focus on those hundred things that I did really well, or I can choose to focus on the thing that I didn't do well. And self-compassion means 
letting yourself off the hook for those things that we don't do so well and not beating yourself up, taking a minute to remind yourself of all of the good things that you've done all week long. This isn't to excuse your behavior either. It's not, it's not a way to say like, uh, you know, I didn't pack your lunch and it's because I was doing such and such. And you know what? You should pack your own lunch anyway. You know, uh, it's not that. It's just simply to acknowledge that, yeah, I forgot to pack your lunch. You're right. I did that. And kind of let it be okay. You know, let it be okay. Because once you've identified that, then you can take action steps towards changing that. I can put a timer on my phone to remind me to do the thing. I can, I can immediately fess up to my mistake and say, you know what? I got a speeding ticket. I shouldn't have been speeding. Um, I know it. And I, you know, I'm going to have to pay for that versus trying to hide it or delay, you know, things that sometimes I have done in the past. So giving yourself your own encouragement too, like you would to your friends, you know, being compassionate, using phrases that are comforting and supporting, is how we really reparent ourselves and build that self-compassion, which heals a lot of the shame. Yeah. And this stuff takes practice. I mean, you're not going to change your thinking overnight. No. But this is so helpful. um, And, and so like, it just feels better to hear it and talk about it and just have these steps that we can take you know you talk about acceptance leading to action and then I I think even before acceptance leading to action is like that ownership like you said like acceptance and responsibility they kind of go together and then action and I love the how you say action towards solutions because I feel like a lot of the times we're so focused on the problem, but we should be focused on the solutions. I agree with that. Um, I learned that too. I mean, early on being solution focused is, or being a part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And that's something that I've used. I use probably daily, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, things go on for us. You have kids too, you know, like, and I'm not saying if you don't have kids, you don't have things going on, but in my world, I'm not, it's not only about me, you know, like I have three other people plus a husband that are, that are, have huge schedules, you know, that have their own emotional needs that that are constantly changed. Somebody gets sick, somebody's hurt, somebody needs this, that, whatever. And I um, really feel like I constantly need to be saying to myself when somebody's coming at me with a thing or I'm presented with a situation and as soon as I feel that a lot of that discomfort and some of this happens much quicker for me now, because like you said, it takes a lot of practice so I can go through my process. I don't immediately go into negative thinking, generally speaking, anymore. And I'll, sometimes I'll get there with time, but it's not usually the first thing. Or if it is, I can quickly reverse that. But I almost always do have to stop and say like, okay, what what is the solution to this situation? Like, how can I help? Right. And so I might have to look at one of my kids who's complaining about a situation and it almost sounds like they need my help or they're asking and they're going on and on about this friend or this teacher or this whatever. And I'm listening and I I usually look at them and say, how can I help you right now? And a lot of times they say, you can't. I'm like, okay, fine. I can't. So I'm listening. Then I'm just listening. That's how I'm helping. But being a part of the solution means being able to recognize that and not jumping into um, a desire to fix, you know, or 
or overstepping your boundaries with somebody, you know? Well, that's a good point. <laughs> that is a great point, yeah. especially with kids. Um, I want to change gears just a little bit because you're on here and it's interesting. Can you talk a little more about EMDR therapy, what that is and, and how that's helpful? Sure. So it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It is a neurologically based form of trauma treatment that helps to reprocess and reframe old and disturbing events from our life. So it was just, it was founded back in 1984 um, and been heavily researched and studied since then. So it's very research-based. There's a lot of new research that's coming out of Europe right now over the last two years or so with even more ways to use it and to intensify the experience and to really um, get more healing. So basically what it, it is, is it's called bilateral stimulation, bilateral meaning left, right, left, right, to uh, tap into the back part of our brain, which is that reptilian or um, hippocampus part of the brain, which is where negative beliefs about yourself get stored when our brains don't process through trauma or incidents properly. So as an example, say you were in a car accident, when you were um, 10 years old and um, your mom was driving the car and you were in the back seat and you, and you were distracting your mom by asking her questions about such and such or begging to go to Chick-fil-A and your mom got in an accident. And because of that, this is, I'm just making this up. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that situation happened, you internalize the negative belief about yourself that you, it's your fault. It's your fault that you got in the accident because you were distracting your mom. And so that is your fault, negative belief, if that pro- if your brain doesn't process that, that trauma properly for you, will get stored back there and then threaded throughout your life and all of your relationships and your work and everything and really affect everything, right? And then from then on, you might also have a lot of other situations that come along that fit the narrative of it's my fault. Maybe it's personal relationships, like with a partner or children or other things. And suddenly everything that goes wrong in your life is your fault. And so what EMDR does is come along using the protocol and specific uh, treatment process to figure out what those core beliefs are about yourself, those negative beliefs, where they came from, and then use the protocol to process through each of those events and clean out the neuropathways pathways that get carved in your brain when we have the trauma. It's, it's, and so- then it re- we, we reframe it. So we use the processing to process through it. And then eventually at the end, it's being reframed in a much more positive way so that it can get restored in the front part of your brain, which is more rational and with a positive belief about yourself, like it's not my fault or, um, I'm fine as I am, or I am good enough, you know, things like that. Yeah. And it's it doesn't, shown a lot of benefits, right? Oh my gosh. It's the closest thing we have to a miracle to yeah. healing trauma in the yeah. brain and really reducing that emotional stimulation. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I Is that sure. something that you can practice with your coaching clients? I can't practice EMDR therapy in coaching because okay. it's therapeutic. However, 
What's great about it is there are a lot of tools, like, for example, the butterfly hug. Have you ever heard or seen that? No. Uh, if you cross your arms, like at the wrists, across your chest and your heart, and you tap back and forth with your hands on, like, almost on on your chest, but, like, almost kind of at your shoulders, if you tap back and forth with your hands, that's called, a, we call that a butterfly hug. And that is a form of bilateral stimulation, right? You're getting left, right, left, right. So technically it's in the EMDR family, but we can use that a lot for things like resourcing. Like if I was working with a client and coaching, I might say, and they were struggling with um, a negative thought, like, gosh, I just always mess everything up. And then I might help them to reframe that in a positive way. Like, tell me some of the beliefs. Tell me a time when you felt like you didn't mess something up, you know, you got it right. And they're like, oh, I graduated with my master's degree and got a license in social work. And then how did that make you feel? Super confident and competent and all the things. Okay, great. So then you think about that experience while you're using the butterfly hug and tapping that in. Oh. And it can really deep it, deepen that, like, the belief about yourself. See what I mean? That's so So cool. it's not... Yeah, it's not total EMDR, but it, there are little t tools that we can sort of use that aren't quite as, you know, in the therapy realm. Also, aroma freedom technique or AFT is was based off of EMDR model. So it's using essential oils and a very specific meditative model that follows the EMDR protocol to help people release a lot of their memories and process through them much the same way. So I'm not AFT certified. However, I do use it because I think it's awesome. And um, I, I'm an EMDR therapist, so I feel like I'm capable of running that process for somebody. And it's pretty powerful. Wow. So, oh, I wish we had more time, Shelby. This is so interesting. Um, yeah, it's so fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. You, I, I mean, thank you for sharing your story and then like your, your tips about negative thinking and overcoming shame, just really, really helpful for people. Uh, how can someone find you? So the best way to find me is on Facebook. Well, my website, I just actually got brand new website. It's been all redone. It's shelbyjohncoaching.com. You can find me there. You can read a little bit more about me and all of the things that I have. There's a couple of courses on there and my coaching programs. I also have the Facebook group, which is called Confident Sober Women. It's free and private and it's a lovely place to come and feel connected and um, get a lot of information and training. And I hang out on Facebook mostly because of that group. I'm on Instagram, but I'm loosely on Instagram. So um, Facebook or my emails through the website would probably be the best. Okay. And then you have your own podcast, Confident Sober Women, right? I do. Yay. I do. That's so great. Yep. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation. I, I hope that we can talk again because I really enjoy talking with you. I hope so, too. It's been so fun. All right. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Alcohol Tipping Point. If you like this show, please rate and review or subscribe, share it. Let's help other people. Have a great day. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point. I'm always here for you guys. So please feel free to reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point. 
and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com. Again, I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, see you next time.